My daughter Bethany uh, came up a couple of weeks ago uh, when I was in hospital again and uh, she brought with her a little box that my sister had given her. Uh, and that little box had been my mother's, and in it were the things that my mother, who died about 15 years ago, had kept to do with me and Chris and the children. And uh, it was quite neat to be able to look through this memorabilia. There were photos of Nana, as we called her, with her grandchildren, uh, photos of us as a family looking a whole lot younger uh, and there were also newspaper clippings of past achievements. And uh, then there was also her invitation to our wedding. And maybe because it, well, I was fighting an infection, but I was actually quite moved by seeing that invitation. Now, I know it makes me sound a little bit like a Kiwi bloke, but I don't actually remember seeing those invitations before. I mean, no one sent one to me. <laughs> I, I must have seen them. In fact, Chris tells me that I helped choose them. So there we go. But in those days, uh, weddings were handled a little bit more traditionally. And uh, they, um, Chris's parents, Ray and Shona, had sent the invitations out to the family and friends that were on our guest list. Uh, um, th that invitation at the time was, was a source of hope at a dark time for my mum. After Chris and I had announced our engagement, she was diagnosed with bowel cancer. She had surgery and the focus of getting well again was to be able to be at and enjoy our wedding. And you know, it was really great to have her there. Uh, she did enjoy the wedding. She was quite tired by the day. But she also managed to beat bowel cancer and lived another 17 years or so to see all her grandchildren. At the centre of Revelation 19 that we had read to us today, there is an invitation to a wedding feast. One that seemed under threat because of what was going on in the world around it. One that was a matter of hope in dark times. The marriage feast of the Lamb and his bride. A picture from scripture of the eternal hope that we have of Christ and his people sitting down together when God's kingdom is consummated. A wedding feast that you and I are invited to, that we look forward to, that enables us to persevere and to keep going, that we have a foretaste of as we celebrate communion together today. And we're working our way through the uh, book of Revelation. And the series is entitled Eternal Hope, in Christ amidst present suffering. That's the good news of the book of Revelation. That even uh, in the difficult, uncertain times, even in the face of persecution and evil in the world, that Jesus has won the victory through his death and his resurrection. Now, um, I, this is the first time in 30 years of ministry that I've actually preached through the book of Revelation. And it's quite challenging 
But each time and each chapter we look at is full of hope, the eternal hope of Christ. It's very easy to remember, we talked about it at the beginning, that a lot of people have looked uh, through history, through the lens of revelation, and they've concentrated on the bad things that are happening and say, see, it's happening now. But in actual fact, for the people then and there, the reality was there was hope as they faced for the first time, state-sanctioned persecution. There was hope because of Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain. Well, let's work our way through the text of Revelation 19. And this chapter is actually quite hard to preach through uh, because, as one commentator said, the chapter numbers and verses are a good way to get around the book. They're a good way of navigating and knowing where you are but they're not that good when it comes to interpreting it. And that's particularly relevant for Revelation 19 because it's split into two parts. Verse 1 to 10 are the final part of the preceding section that dealt with the demise of the great city, which Revelation symbolically talks of as the great harlot that led the nations astray. And in those 10 verses is heaven's response to the destruction of the city. And it's built around three hallelujahs in contrast to the three woes in chapter 18. The woes of those who were affected by the fall of the city. Then the second half of the chapter, starting in verse 11, is the start of a new section, a new vision You know, John says, and then I saw, or the heavens were opened up. And uh, this part looks at the final fall and defeat of evil. Starting with the beast and the false prophet, ironically portrayed as another feast, but this time for the birds of the air. And then in chapter 20, with the defeat and the end of the dragon, of Satan and evil itself. You might remember back in chapter 16 with the seven bowls of God's wrath being poured out that we had finished with the beast and the kings of the earth gathered to oppose God and also with the judgment of the great city, Babylon. Then in verse 17 and 18, there's the story of how that city had led people astray and its destruction finishing with the lament by the kings who derived their authority from this worldly system. Remember that Babylon represents a worldly system that that sets itself up up against and opposed to the worship of God. And also uh, from the merchants and the sea captains who had made their wealth through trade with this city and this system. Chapter 19 then gives the picture of what the response in heaven is to what's happened on earth. And it's based, as I said before, around three hallelujahs. Now, as Christians, we're used to using this Jewish word, hallelujah, praise the Lord, praise Yahweh, to worship and praise God. The book of Psalms in the Old Testament uses it extensively, but you might be surprised to realize that this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. It's here in this chapter. And the focus for this worship is not that Babylon has fallen, but rather it's to affirm that God has been right in his judgments 
And it's a vindication of the character of God that he has brought justice for the suffering and the death of his people. That God has set all things right. The image of smoke rising forever in the second hallelujah is an acknowledgement that God has dealt with this evil once and for all. It's not just a temporary respite. And it's hard to think about rejoicing over the fall of a city, uh, to rejoice while the other, other people are mourning, a joy in the face of what would have been suffering and mourning for other people. And as I looked for a way to explain it, I could only think of the joyful scenes of VE and VJ Day at the end of the Second World War. That's the VE celebrations in Auckland City, you know? Um, celebrating that the conflict is over. Loved ones are coming home again. There's the possibility of peace. Uh, and because these first two hallelujahs are in heaven, shouted those by those who were before the throne and echoed by the four living beings and the 24 el elders who shout hallelujah, amen, we can see what has happened from an eternal perspective from God's perspective. And from that perspective, it is possible to see that God's plans and judgments are just. The focus, as I said before, is not on the destruction of the city, but God's goodness and justice. And it's only from that eternal perspective can there be a right judgment of history. Then in verse five, there's a voice from the throne that calls all God's servants to praise God, both great and small. And here we have and we are invited to join in heaven's praise. All the servants of God are invited to worship God. Our voices join heavens in that sound like the roar of rushing waters and thunder. Maybe you've experienced that roar if you've been to the Whangarei Falls after some serious rain. It's hard to think when you're standing by just listening to that rush. Um, this is a bit of a confession here. I uh, finished this uh, message for today uh, off when I was on holiday at Kafia. And the, back, the, the soundtrack in the background to this was the pounding of Tasman waves against the um, Aotea Harbour Bar. It was that boom, boom. You know, that resounding crash. And the reason for praising God here is not, again, the defeat of the city. Rather, it's the fact that God reigns and that the marriage feast of the Lamb is now going to happen. It's not a sort of Christian triumphantism or gloating over a defeated enemy. Rather, it's looking at the consummation of God's salvation plans. It's uh, like in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus had sent out the 72 on a short-term mission trip, and they return and they're all praising and a God and they're all amazed that even the evil spirits obeyed them. And Jesus says, don't rejoice over that. Don't rejoice over the defeat of evil. Rather, rejoice that your name is recorded in heaven. Amen. Yeah, amen. Yeah, let's rejoice about that, you know. Um, here, 
also we are called to worship God not because of the fall of evil, but because our salvation has been won by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, by the Lamb who was slain. And the angel showing John the vision tells him to write a beatitude, a happy is saying, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Here's the encouragement for us. That is our hope. That is our eternal future, with and in Christ. The rest we can leave in God's hands with the affirmation that God can be trusted to act justly. Now the idea of the feast of the lamb and his bride, wedding feast, comes from the scripture, from the Old Testament, places like Hosea chapter 2 and continues in the New Testament as an image of Christ and his church. And in this passage, it seems that John uses some poetic license to say that we are both the bride, as part of the church, but also the guests. Corporately, we are the bride of Christ, the church. But the invitation also comes to us individually as guests to come and meet with the groom, at this marriage feast. Now in Jewish custom, a couple would be betrothed to each other and in Jewish thought they were already considered married. But there would be a time set aside for the groom after he'd prepared a place for his bride to come to the bride's house and claim his bride. And in that time there would be much rejoicing. We get a picture of that in the marriage of, in Cana in John's Gospel where there's many days celebrating. They even run out of wine and, you know, have to call on Jesus to perform a miracle. Well, during that time of betrothal, there was the expectation that the bride would be faithful to her groom and the groom would be faithful to his bride. And that faithfulness here is symbolised in the bride dressed in fine white linen, linen that she is given to wear. And we're told in verse 8 that this is the righteous acts of God's people. However, you know, when we see that it was the linen was given to her, we realise that these righteous acts are a result of God's gracious act of salvation. They are in response to what Christ has done for us. You know, it comes out of the grace of God. In Revelation 7.14 uh, we note that the multitude standing before the throne in heaven were dressed in white. And they are said to be the ones who had washed their clothes in the blood of the Lamb, who are put right with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then the, the chapter here takes a bit of a weird turn. Sort of um, as John is overcome with the wonderful news of the marriage feast, he actually bows down. He has this compulsion to worship. So he bows down and starts to worship the angel that had spoken to him. And John has to be reminded that you worship God alone and that the angel is simply a messenger and a fellow servant. And that while this is good news, it's so wonderful it points to Jesus, not the one who pronounces it. Um, scholars are divided over why this is here. Maybe John is actually being really honest and talking about how he responded. 
and uh, you know he's he's vulnerable, and and acknowledging that he himself is human and just doesn't always get things right. We know from Colossians 1.18 that angel worship was a, an issue uh, around the false teaching that was uh, happening in Colossae, uh, which of course is one of the seven churches that the book of Revelation is written to. And maybe John was just here giving a warning against that. But again, in the midst of all that's going on, we have a reminder of the importance of worshipping God alone. And also the role of prophecy, which is to point us to Jesus Christ, not the messenger. Uh, you know, maybe, I don't know, it, maybe it's easy to sort of put messengers on pedestals. You know, celebrity pastors. Yeah, people that have got, you know, that say, I've got a gift of this or a gift of that. We put them on a pedestal. But again, we need to be reminded that we are all simply servants of God. God's servants. And we all together worship God alone. Second half of the chapter then is a new vision. Now the heavens are opened and we see what's happening on earth, starting in verse 11. And it's really dealing with unfinished business. What's going to happen to the beast and the false prophet and the dragon? When we last heard of the beast and the false prophet, they had gathered together all the kings of the earth to oppose heaven and oppose God. We now we see that heaven opens and a figure at the head of an army is coming down. And we have a vivid description of this figure. Uh, that then, and then instead of a battle scene, we have an invitation to another feast. This time the birds of the air are invited to a gruesome feast of the defeated armies of the kings of this world. The beast and the false prophet are thrown alive into a burning fire, into a sulfur pit. Once again, in Revelation, this imagery is hard for us to comprehend and deal with. You know, we don't like this kind of judgment kind of stuff. I watched an old TV series while I was on holiday about the SAS, and one episode had them up against a doomsday cult whose leader, whenever they tried to talk to him or negotiate or reason with him, would simply spout sections from Revelation. And, you know, it was hard hearing him spout this very chapter as justification for the armed standoff with the police. But as you look at it, you realise that John's focus is not on the battle, but rather the one who comes. Verse 11 to 17 are a description of the one who comes down from heaven. And it picks up imagery and titles that uh, we have had before in Revelation to describe Jesus. Also the hope and expectation of the Old Testament of the coming Messiah. Now Christ comes like the warrior to set things right. But only after in the book he has been described as the lamb who was slain. It's his death on the cross and God's raising him to life again, that means he has victory over evil. His victory over the beast and the false prophet is also not by force or violence, but by his word. The sharp-edged sword is an image of Jesus' word. 
It's the testimony of Jesus that will ultimately defeat the beast and the false prophet. His word, his death, his resurrection, those are the things that have won the victory. The image of the birds gathering to feast on the bodies is a picture from the battlefields of the time and defeated armies. It was the the most ignominious way that you could leave your enemy was out on the battlefield to be picked over by the vultures and the other birds. Um, It was uh, what um, Rome, how Rome treated their enemies. And here, in a sense, uh, in a a very way of using these same images, was the way in which this earthly system set up against God would also uh, be treated in the end. And it says the beast and the false prophet are thrown alive into the sulphur pit. Um, West Turkey is actually known for its geothermal areas, uh, both relaxing hot pools, but also very hot steam vents and sulphur vents. So for John's first readers, they would have an understanding of such a punishment. Uh, Maybe even seen as sort of a picture of hell. And maybe in New Zealand, with the geothermal activity in places like Rotorua, we can understand those images as well. If you've ever stood next to a sulphur pit in Rotorua, and as well as the stench, sort of felt the heat that comes out of them, you you, you sort of get a picture of this. Okay, well, what is there for us today from this passage? Firstly, I think it underscores the importance of praise and worship as we face the difficulties and suffering of life. The focus of Revelation is the worship of God, both in heaven, like in chapters like uh, 4 and 5, and here in 19. But also the invitation that we receive from the voice from the throne to praise our God. And as we worship God, our focus changes from the situation we are in to what Jesus has done for us. From what seems like the dark shadow of the valley floor, you know, where there's absolutely no way out to a longer, higher view of God's sovereignty, God's justice, God's faithfulness, God's salvation plan in Jesus Christ, our future hope in Christ, his faithfulness to us. Doing that does not diminish the pain or sorrow we may face, but it does put it into perspective. When you look at the Psalms, you see that there's a place for lament as God's people wrestle with injustice and suffering and the question of how long, O God, how long are we going to have to wait? Which, remember, is also the the call of those who had been martyred in Revelation. But also we have praising God for his faithfulness, his care for his people, his abiding presence, and the hope that God will eventually set all things right. The focus for worship here is the marriage feast of the Lamb and the Bride. And as Christians, as we face all the difficult situations we do, we need to be reminded of the fact that our future is sitting down with Christ at the marriage feast of the Lamb. The regular practice of celebrating communion helps us to do that. Uh, In the way that Christ told us to, in a simple meal, we look back and we remember his death and his resurrection. 
Those were the means by which we are put right with God. And we acknowledge, just as we we are strengthened by food and drink, that uh, Christ is with us today. And we also affirm that he will return and we will feast with him. That is our eternal hope. Lastly, I think many of us kind of wish that Jesus would turn up like the warrior image in this chapter, right in the nick of time. You know, right in the nick of time as we face difficulties. There is that scene that I really love uh, in the second Lord of the Rings movie where the armies of Rohan and their elven allies are about to be overrun and the survivors decide to ride out and go down fighting against a vast overwhelming army of orcs. The forces of Sauron, a very beast-like character. And Saruman, a wizard who had turned to worship evil, very much like the false prophet. And you've got to remember Tolkien is a Christian man, so maybe he has this passage in Revelation in his mind when he wrote the scene from um, Helm's Deep. And uh, as they ride out, they do so with the hope of the words that Gandalf had told them, to look for hope on the dawning of the third day. And as they are about to be defeated, the sun rises on Helm's Deep, and they see Gandalf on a white horse, followed by an army on horseback, and the enemy is defeated. And we kind of want Jesus to turn up like that, in in the midst of the, the, the difficulties and problems that we are having in life. And you know... Sometimes we do receive miraculous intervention and there is the promise of God's abiding presence with us in the midst of all the difficulties that we face. But The story of Revelation is that there will be an ultimate setting things right. And our hope is not in that, but rather in the, you know, not in that um, coming of a, a, a warrior but in simple things like an invitation to a wedding feast, that you and I are invited to the wedding feast of the lamb and the bride. Facing the present ebbs and flows of life, the ups and downs, the good times and the difficult times, the joyful times and the times of suffering, trusting in the faithfulness of the lamb who was slain. Trusting in the faithfulness of the one who loves his bride and gave his life for us. Amen? Great. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord.